Welcome to the School of Rock Bottom podcast with Oliver Mason. I'm an actor, a voiceover artist, a performing arts school principal and a mental health coach. And it's these careers and passions combining that have given birth to this podcast. And here's some interesting facts. Those working in the performing arts industry are twice as likely to suffer with depression and up to 15 times more likely to suffer with anxiety. And those working across the creative industries are up to three times more likely to suffer with poor mental health. So on this podcast, I'm inviting really amazing creatives who have incredible stories, who have lived through a rock bottom, but have survived. These stories need to be told so that people know that there is always hope and there is always, always a way out. We're also going to be talking about how to protect your mental health whilst working in the creative industries. I'm really excited today. I've got an incredible guest with me. I've got the wonderful Mark Lockyer. Now, before I get into all of these amazing questions and and everything I want to ask him um, I'm just going to give him a little intro so forgive me while I just look at my my notes here because I want to make sure I get this right so Mark Lockyer is a RADA graduate his screen work includes The Devil in the Soldier's Tale for BBC Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince and London Road and TV includes Maxwell, Holby City and the fall of Rome. Now, his theatre career, which spans over 30 years, has involved working extensively with the RSC and performing at many theatres, including the Royal Court, the Old Vic, the Almeida Theatre, the Young Vic, Bristol Old Vic and the Hampstead Theatre. In, associ- in association sorry, with the Young Vic, Mark took his one-man autobiographical show, Living with the Lights On, on tour in the UK and abroad. And previous theatre credits include... Vernon God Little at the Young Vic, The Madness of King George III and Ghetto at the National Theatre and Hamlet at the Shakespeare's Globe. That's just to name a few. Wow. Mm. What a career. It's all lies. All lies. I just wrote it myself, so it's big. (laughs) Well, I did have a little bit of help. (laughs) Um, Mark, I'm just going to get straight to it, if that's all right. I've invited you on because you've got the most incredible story and I think it's so important that people get to hear it. And... um, I'm just going to get straight to it and ask you to take us to your rock bottom moment. Um, and I know that, like with every guest, there isn't just one moment. There's there's a collection of them. There's many of them. Um, I just wondered if you'd be able to take the listeners and the viewers to that moment. And I know you're an amazing storyteller. Mm. Um, but try and describe to us how old you are, where you are, what's going on, and we'll really try to take us there. I think I was uh, maybe in my mid-30s, 35. I was at Euston Station. I'd bought a ticket to Dunleary in Ireland. And my intention was to get on the boat train and um, throw myself off the ferry. And there was an extraordinary moment about 20 minutes before the train was going to go. And I don't know where the voice came from, but it just said, you can't do this anymore. Um, You've got to turn around and tell someone. And I don't know why, but I did. And I went to uh, a policeman and I asked for help. And um, I was was actually arrested, taken to a police station, 
And then uh, I was taken uh, over the weekend. I, I stayed in the cells, and then on the Monday, I was went to the magistrate's court. I, you know, got myself into trouble with the law, clearly. And the judge said that I had to go to prison on remand for my own safety. And I remember sitting in Belmarsh Prison in the hospital wing because they knew I wasn't well. Going, how did it come to this? How did it actually get to this? Because two years before, I'd been playing Mercutio at the Royal Shakespeare Company and um, my life had just completely disintegrated and I was totally powerless over it and I didn't know why. So I think my rock bottom moment was probably sat on that hospital bed, locked up, terrified, bewildered, thinking, I. Uh, I just don't know how this has happened. And um, that's it, you know. Well, thank you for sharing that, Mark. And I appreciate this is an incredibly hard question I'm about to ask and very intricate, and you're not going to be able to answer it in one sentence, that's for sure. But how did you get there? Now, with the hindsight of time, looking back, if you had to summarise how you got there. Well, the irony of the whole story, of that whole moment, really, was that what seemed like, uh, you know, a total negative actually turned into a fantastic positive because mm. I'd been calling for help uh, for a long time through, you know, GPs and whatever. You know, I, I had a, a very severe, you know, I was diagnosed in prison with severe bipolar disorder, mixed state bipolar disorder, which just basically means you can be high and depressed at the same time. It's like, like a double whammy. Mm. And I did not know. And now in hindsight, I look back and, you know, I'd, I'd probably been hovering over the illness for many, 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 many years. And it just happened, and because bipolar disorder is triggered by stress, um, it's no surprise that there I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'd had a fantastic season in 93. The year before, won, you know, you know, got a lot of acclaim for the work that I did and went back and... You know, there were symptoms showing of odd behaviour and thought patterns. Right. which just mushroomed at that point. And then when it, it's like, you know, it's like a it's like a bullet from a gun. When it when the bullet goes, it, it falls apart very, very fast, you know. And I was rendered incapable of looking after myself, looking after my hygiene, looking after a home, drinking loss of friends, family, and bewildered. And it wasn't until that I was diagnosed. Mm. But I had to go to prison to get a diagnosis. Wow. And how old were you then, Mark? 35. 35. Mm. And you touched on the fact that you were aware of some issues for for a number of years, although you weren't diagnosed. At what age do you think it started when you thought that there might be something wrong? 
Well, the benefit of hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? I think that as a as a lad, I was someone that was you know completely hyperactive, and I remember used to, I used to have to have days off school because I was just kind of bedridden with exhaustion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the little shit. And um, <laughs> um, but I think it was it was when I was about seventeen, uh, and I went to Rado incredibly young. You know, I was just 18 when I arrived. Wow. And it was very overwhelming. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's drama school is a very tough place for anybody, but particularly somebody young. Um, not sure it's got a great deal to do with acting, but that's another story. Um, he did very well to get in so young as well, because obviously they usually mm, take people who are a little bit older, don't they? They do. Generally. They do. Yeah. They do. Um, Talented guy you are. But I, but I was committed. You know, I wanted it. Mm. I think they could tell that I really, really wanted it. And I did. But when I got there, I think the stress and the long hours and, uh, you know, my, my drinking picked up. You know, what came first, my drinking or my bipolar disorder? Doesn't It's irrelevant. You know, one fed the other, I think. But I think I was genetically... Had a had an illness and didn't know, and I had my first breakdown at Rada, and I had to leave for three months, and you know, kind of in those days, you know, we're talking about nineteen eighty five. Mm. You know, the, the, the mental health has has revolutionised in terms of people's consciousness. What help was available at Rada then? There wasn't anything. Wow. You know, I went back and I performed Living With The Lights On and then did a question and answer with the students in 2020, or 2019. And, you know, there was a Q&A afterwards. And I said, guys, you know, when I was lying on the, what they called the matron's floor, there was an office mm. rather than called the matron, you know, the matron. <laughs> Who was the matron? Uh, who's the matron? She was actually Brenda. She was actually a very, oh. very lovely lady, actually. But she yeah. was called the matron. But... <laughs> Anyway, there's me lying on the floor having a terrible panic attack, and um, it was just there was there was no understanding or facility uh, going to a GP, you know, mm. and and then ten years later, you know, going to in Stratford, going to a GP, and I said to the GP, I said, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm very well. He said, What do you mean you're not very well? I said, Well, I don't think I'm very well. I can't, I can't sleep and I can't concentrate, and I've started doing stupid things, and you know, it's like I've got no edit button. Mm. And um, he said, well, what are you moaning for? He said, you're, you're all Shakespeare company. You're playing decent parts. You know, you've got, you, you've got your youth. What a fat lot of good that was. I mean, what I needed, and I can honestly say this with absolute clarity, what I needed was, you know, being taken away. I needed to be taken away from that, that situation at work and placed in a place of safety where I could get proper help and medicated and, and supported and diagnosed. But it didn't exist because I am, I'm sorry, but I, I am a firm believer that, and there still is, we've got a hell of a long way to go. There is a fantastically uh, uh, fear and prejudice uh, against mental health issues. Mm. It's got better. Mm. Uh, but believe you me, 1985, 1995, it just, you know, there was nothing. There was no counselling in drama schools. You know, now, now you go to any drama school now and you go to your principal or you go to your facilitator and you say, you know, I'm mm. struggling, blah, blah. There'll be support for you. And yeah. that's fantastic. Mm. You know, we're talking about young people here. I remember when I was at drama school and they said there's a counsellor that 
you can speak to and and i remember there being like a bit of shock actually between the students they were like oh wow this is new and actually a couple were kind of slightly mocking it you know and i remember it being quite taboo and that was they'll be the first to go <laughs> yeah absolutely so, so mark there's nothing wrong with me <laughs> <laughs> so mark you were effectively sort of untreated from and it could be previous to you being 18 but it sounds like 18 to what 35 yeah so that's a period of 17 years where you're flying from the seat of your pants if you like you're you're, totally. you're completely in the wind what what was that like at times it was wonderful mm. you know I, I was probably high for a lot of it and when i mean high i don't mean high on substances i mean mm. high on you know for those of you who don't understand the rudiments of bipolar disorder it is a mood disorder which is triggered by stress and unless medicated the sufferer will have extremes of mood which mm. shift to the highest which they call mania where your behavior is you know you're living life at a, you know a very lack of sleep uh, living your life at 100 miles an hour doing inappropriate things sexually personally whatever you know you just don't have an edit you just don't give a toss mm. you think you are invincible i believed <laughs> get this i believed when I was at the RSC, before it all fell apart, I, I used to windsurf. That was my hobby. I used to go mm. to an inland lake in the day and windsurf. I found it very... And I used to get these delusions of grandeur. And one day somebody came in. I came back from surfing and I was doing a show and I was having my tea in the green room. Somebody said, oh, we've been today. I said, oh, I've been windsurfing today. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It was a good. I said, yeah, because the British Olympic uh, windsurfing team came up to scout me. Right. Get out of it. No, I'm going to be at the Olympics. Right. And I kind of believed it mm. and also knew that it was a terrible lie. So right. I had this kind of delicious mixture of things. And I believed. <laughs> I believed <laughs> that I was the most, I was the most brilliant, best Shakespearean actor in the country. I didn't tell anybody. Just in case they put me right. But I believed it. I believed. And maybe for a couple of hours, I, maybe I was. And it sounds like that mindset actually could really help you in your career. Because if you're believing that and believing fantasy, people, that, that must be very useful on stage or on screen. Yeah, people love confidence. People also don't like confidence because they think you're a big head. I did upset a few people. <clears throat> and I suddenly became really verbally witty. Mm. I suddenly became... Oh, my God. It's like somebody's in my head. I can... I can, I, I'm coming out with quips and put downs and things like that. That's mania. And, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, and I hope you don't mind this question. But is there is there any upside, for want of a better word, to the to the manic stage? Is yeah. it is it enjoyable yeah, just it on fantastic. some level? Right, it's fantastic. Yeah, you know, you become suddenly really. Um, you feel that you're invincible. Wow. Who doesn't want to feel invincible? Mm. You feel you become incredibly attractive to women. Mm. You know, I was a younger man then, you know, and I was. It was great. And I played it. Mm. <laughs> And we know in science that that brain loves homeostasis, you know. So if you take a mind-altering substance and you increase dopamine levels by, you know, a thousand percent, the brain will then deregulate dopamine receptors by a thousand percent, 
the next day. So, you know, you'll, you'll get a crash uh, in the opposite direction because the brain likes to stay level. And so I'm imagining the crash that comes is as intense as the high. Definitely, because, right. because you know, you go from living in your own film, mm. James Bond, you know, I was climbing up drain pipes. I mean, I was up to all sorts of ridiculous capers, you know, and loving it. But there was no gap or or it was like black and white. There was that happened one day and then in my memory I'm lying in my bed. I realize I haven't it's five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh I haven't got out of bed. I don't want to get out of bed. Uh there are bottles on the floor of or cans uh the, 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 the cigarettes put out on the bedroom table uh just shit everywhere and it it but also so that you know the fall i don't ha- i don't have a memory in my uh, maybe of of that descent it just mm. happened just happened you know but there was a i suppose there was a moment some moments where I, I I just felt so out of control. <clears throat> Excuse me, so out of control. You know, there, there was one moment in in Romeo and Juliet, a matinee. You know, running around and you know, well, I know what we could laugh. I did nick that bloke sat the musician's saxophone and just ask about, and I was completely powerless to stop it. Mm. And then the stage manager going, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, well, I'm just don't know. You know, and then saying stupid things to people, you know. Didn't, didn't you say to the stage manager, you're Courtney Pine or something? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I said to her, I said, <laughs> I said some terrible things to people. It's like the edit button. It's like saying things that you really mm. shouldn't say, but I just said it. And how long would these episodes go on for? Would it be completely random, um, a manic episode and then a, a depressive episode? Is there sort of... Well, in my memory, when it really went off, I, th- mm. I mean, I look back, I think that, that pivotal point in 95, it, you know, it started, it went up, and then it went down, it went down, it went down, and then I end up in Belmarsh Prison two years later or whatever. But I think there were episodes, I remember going on holiday on my own uh, and a break from work and and being in a hotel on my own in some Greek hill in Corfu and thinking and believing that the woman who ran it was going to come and stab me right. in the middle of the <clears> night. So I jumped out the window. Terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I jumped out the window with my suitcase and got in a car and drove two hours back to Corfu town. I mean, what? <laughs> it's not normal, is it? Mm. But when you're in it, it's easy for me to say now it's not normal, is it? Mm. But it was very real. And, um, um, you know, I, I, I've just had an incident in my in my in my home. Uh, a neighbour is a schizophrenic. Clearly, stopped taking his medication. It started on the Sunday, about a week ago. Letters through the post saying that I was interfering with his fridge and controlling his gadgets. I knew mm-hmm. that. I knew it straight away. It was an issue. And cut to Friday, where he's outside my house with a metal pipe down his trousers. Oh, my word. Right. Threatening to break my door down. Right. And the reason why I say that mm. is because I know that that guy's mindset is not because he's violent. Yeah. It's because in his head, 
he's so deluded he doesn't understand yeah sure i'm just an enemy yeah so he's, it's coming from fear so you've got compassion and empathy obviously for that huge yeah huge so I mean, it's a bit annoying and frightening but i mean mm. yeah ultimately yeah and in the end I, I contributed to getting him sectioned and taken on right. some help. But yeah. what yeah. I'm saying is I, I share that story because it's the hell in one's own mind mm. is the hell in one's own mind. You can't, nobody else can really live that. Mm. You can, you can allude to it, you know, but though that, though, those, that period going downhill for me, what was so painful was I was so powerless over it. And mm. I believed that I was that there were, I was possessed by something, right? Because I couldn't stop it. Your play "Living with the Lights On," which I saw at the Young Vic, um, absolutely amazing, and I've seen the film version as well. Mm. Um, absolutely amazing piece of work, and obviously it's autobiographical. Um, you just mentioned one of the characters in the play. Um, which I think you refer to as bees. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he's sort of an American. Uh... Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. How you doing? That's the voice. Yeah. And uh, he's sort of wearing, um, you know. Hawaiian the, shirt. Hawaiian shirt and, and, and the beach clothes and the sunglasses. And he's. Do you want the story behind that? Well, this is what I was going to ask you. Why that? Occurred? Well, you, you refer to him, I think, as the devil yeah. in the play mm. and the film. And I just wondered what he signifies to you. Literally, mm. if there is a literal interpretation. There, there is. I was driving out of Stratford one day. It was very early on, you know, clearly something was not quite right. Very anxious, very vulnerable. I was also living a double life because by that time I was having an affair with somebody in the company. Uh, so, you know, caught between thinking I was like Casanova and an arsehole. Probably more of an arsehole, really. But I was driving out, and the, there was this pain in my head. And it was like, I thought my head was going to explode. And it was so bad, I thought, I've got to stop. And uh, it's the Warwick Road out of Stratford, for anybody that knows it. And I stopped, and I actually, I, I indicated, and I turned off, and I parked the car, and I walked down to the river, and my head was just really thumping. And then, this is what I saw in my head. There was a box. And the box opened, the lid opened, and this little fella got out with a Hawaiian shirt and horns and no trousers. No. And that image never left me. Mm. So I felt that I was possessed. Of right. course, what I was possessed by was me. Right. But it was a version of me, you know. But in the play, what I did was I wanted to... I wanted to make the bipolar, the personification of negative, outside of me. Right, got it. Yeah? Yeah. So, so, so you know, and in a way, I kind of believed that. I do believe that. Mm. There is an, a, 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 my experience is that there is a very, very negative force in me. Right. That under the wrong circumstances, getting ill or boozing or taking drugs, that that alter ego comes out. Right. So is it specifically bipolar disorder and substance misuse? If, if, if I had to put it in a box, and I know it's not always useful to do that. I think the exact word, 
is comorbidity, <laughs> you'll find. That is the clinical term. Mm. I.e., you've, you've got two things going on now. My, mm. my diagnosis uh, is I am, you know, I've got bipolar disorder and uh, I shouldn't drink. Right. And if I'm so right in thinking, you've not had a drink in a long time. Uh, yeah, I haven't had a drink in a, in a long time, no. Wow. And I think that revolutioned my life, revolutionized mm. my life. My life got better when I stopped boozing and taking drugs. Yeah. Because you can't do it. Some people can't. Some people can do it. Can they? I don't know. I don't care about other people in that regard. If you want to take drugs and drink, good for you. If you enjoy it and you can get away with it, fantastic. Great. I love boozing. I love taking drugs. But um, I just can't because I've got a condition that alcohol is like, what is it, petrol on fire. Right. You know, if, mm. if bipolar is the fire. Yeah. Alcohol is the petrol and it just ignites it. And Can I use a quote from um, from your play mm. and film, which I really liked? Mm. Um, you say, everything's circular, no beginning or end, only interruptions. It's the beginning, isn't it? It's the beginning. Yeah. About the story. And I just wondered, in terms of addiction and mental health, mm. that's how I interpreted it when you said that. Now, obviously, how I interpreted it and what you meant might be two different things. But you say, where is addic- um, everything circular, no beginning or end, mm. Yeah. just it, only interruptions? And and that and I just thought the bigger question, and I know we spoke about it earlier. Where does bipolar and addiction start and, and finish? Is 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 there a sort of a link on that journey, or, or would they both exist regardless, or do they only exist because of each other? I'm throwing a lot of questions at you there at one. I appreciate. With the greatest of respect, Ollie, I think that's a very very difficult question to mm. answer. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a clinician. The fact is, my experience is it just is. I've just got it. Yeah. And, you know, and being uh, an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic, uh, you know, I, I thought that drinking helped bipolar mm. disorder. What came first, the chicken or the egg? I mm. don't know. And it doesn't matter. Yeah. And one's continual, one, you know, and in my mind, it's like one continual flow of an event. It's mm. going around and around and around without ever stopping. So if I was to start, it wouldn't be at a beginning, but maybe where I choose to interrupt, i.e. I could come in at any moment mm. in my life. Mm. And that would be, that would be a, a beginning. Yeah. Uh, of 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 all the elements that we've already talked about yeah. any moment in my life would be informed by mm. all that we've talked about so it, yeah. it just and that chicken and the egg thing is obviously something that a lot of people you know the work i do in rehabs for example are very interested in you know they might identify that you know anxiety has always has always been there or depression has always been there and that they've used substances to um to self-medicate to deal with that and i think it's it's um you know, something that people go on their own journey to to work out. But like you say, it's just your experience and and it's just something, you know, that's happened and it is what it is. And sometimes overanalyzing these things, I, I'm guessing what you're saying isn't isn't always helpful. Just kind of no. accepting what is if it's is helpful, more helpful. If it's, I mean, if it's helpful to that person, it's yeah. helpful to you, Ollie, mm. or anyone else, that's great. To me, it's not that helpful, you know. Mm. I, 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 but that's because of the kind of person that I am. Yeah. You know, I'm not a kind of... I, I, 
the theory of something, gotcha. the opinion of something mm. gets right up my nose mm. most of the time about anything. There's too many people who think, mm. just feel and do. Take action, just do, experience. You know, it's like, you know, I, I'd much rather hear somebody share their story and I can identify with that than somebody read me from a textbook. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you you, you, know, you said about, oh, mixed state bipolar disorder. Well, mm. you could go and get a book off the, off the shelf and read all about it, but until you've really experienced mm. it, you're not going to have a fucking clue. Mm. You know, just not. So... Um, so, so what was the key then for you for getting better? What what was I mean? It sounds to me um, feeling your feelings, reaching out, um, getting really honest. What, what what would you say that really really helped you get back on your feet? Because you know you've got a great life. You're you know uh, very busy with your career. Um, you know uh, we know each other personally, and you know I know I know how well you're doing. And um, I, you know for anyone listening or watching. What would you suggest that they they do mm. if 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 they if they can relate to any of your story up until now and maybe they they haven't reached out for any help? Sure. I often say to people, particularly with any kind of mental health issue, and of course you know mental health issues can range from you know I've got quite a severe one, but you know somebody just might be having a bad couple of weeks you know somebody might be in grief somebody might be anxious very understandably about a new job or whatever but if it's becoming overwhelming and getting in the way of and and, and it's difficult to be able to cope mm. i've always said the first port of call is really simple you go to your gp right gps now are armed with information about Places you can be referred to if needed. They have a greater understanding of uh, uh, short-term, long-term medications. If required, you know, um, a, a good GP is just not going to give you pills for the sake of it. They don't want you on medication. But some people might need it to mm. help. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I take medication. If I don't take my medication, I'm going to get sick. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But that's not... But that's not going to be the case for, for everybody. But mm. Go to a go to a GP. But you asked me a much larger question. That's the first port of call. Share it. Talk to your your family or friends. Reach out. Don't sit alone in isolation. With you know, when I watched this poor man who ended up with a metal bar down his jeans on Friday, mm. I've been watching that guy for a long time. He's very very isolated and very very lonely. And nobody should feel cut off and isolated. You know, really be brave and call for help. Because once you make that first step, I think um, things just become easier. Mm. And it's incredibly simple, you know. It's not, it, I mean, the action of it is incredibly simple. Maybe the decision to make it is not, but, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. Mm. You know, there's a lot of help out there and a lot of support mm. and there is absolutely no shame it's taken me a long time to accept you know because there was a lot of 
um, prejudice mm. against me and a big doubt about me, about, you know, Mark, oh, he went nutty and he did, made a fool of himself. I don't care what people think anymore. I quite frankly don't give a shit. Mm. Because I don't need validation from other people. Mm. I just don't. Yeah. And the people that really love me, of which there are many, and the people I really respect and care about, forgave me and helped me and wanted to give me a second chance, you know, because I went to those people and shared that I was, this is what had happened. I was struggling, you know. Fear comes from ignorance. But, you know, I think it's, in a general sense, what what helped me, because I, I feel that, we, you know, because we're talking about a period of the bipolar, but, you know, what I did do, because I had ended up eight years later after getting well, of falling apart again because of my drinking. Right. Because I wouldn't accept that I had a problem with alcohol. Right. So when I fell down this, the second time, and I had to come to terms with alcoholism, as bizarre and as odd as it sounds, I, I made a decision that I just wanted to live. It is as simple as that. Did I want to spend my life living in hostels and psychiatric hospitals, of which, believe you me, I've spent a lot of time in? And the wonderful, bizarre, fantastic people in those places. You know, there's a, there's also a kind of a wonderful creativity. You know, I feel like I've kind of seen the darker side. Not the darker side, but the, the, the other side of society behind the curtain that nobody really sees. And believe you me, there's nothing to be afraid of. Mm. It's just people are really vulnerable. And I realized how blessed I was by seeing people who were never going to get better. Right. So it, but it came down to the decision. What do you want, Mark? Do you want to spend your life dying spiritually in these places? Or do you want to keep on drinking and die? Mm. Because when I put alcohol in me, what happens is, very simply, is that my behavior becomes bizarre mm. because it clicks into those weirdnesses of mental, of uh, bipolar disorder. And, uh, you know, I had four suicide attempts in my in my using. That's the other thing. People with bipolar disorder and alcoholism try to kill themselves. Mm. And I tried it four times. And the fourth time, I nearly managed it. I sit here today and go, I cannot believe that I would have had the desire not to live my life, to, to end it. It's, 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 it's like a, abhorrent. But that is where I ended up at times. Sorry to interrupt you. Why did you not go through with it, do you think? What is it inside you I that you I did go think? through it. Took a took, you know, various overdoses, and the last one nearly killed me. It got me in time. Wow. I actually didn't know that, Mark. No. Mm. Four times. Over the years. Yeah. Um, once I made the decision, no, I do want to live. I want to, I want to act again. Mm. I want to make love to a wonderful, beautiful woman again. I want to go on a date. I want to go on holiday. I want to earn money. I want a home. I want the things that I had had before that mm. I lost. Mm. Even though there was no prospect of that. The only prospect I had was just 
don't drink it at a time. Very slowly, incrementally, my life began to get better. And it got better in a way that I couldn't control. Right. And that is why recovery is so difficult for people and why many people don't get it. I'm talking about alcohol now specifically. It's a given that, you know, I had to take medication and stuff. But, yeah. Um, is because you have to have some faith that it might get better. Mm. It just might. And as I know for myself, sitting in rooms of recovery rooms, going, I really don't feel it's going to get better today, mm -hmm. but I'll give it another go tomorrow. But it does get better. Mm. And in a way, it's all about desire. It's all about what you want. But it's fundamentally, it was fundamental to me to, to live. I remember my first date, I think I'd been around, I think I'd been sober for about two and a half years. And I took this beautiful lady out to the theatre. It's just fantastic. And Mark, you talk about passion and purpose as being a thread. You know, you talked about, I want to act again. I want to, I want to see the sunrise again. And I think that is absolutely key, isn't it? With all, whether it's recovery or mental health, um, finding that passion and that purpose. Because I've, you know, I've always had, you know, performing as a, as a great passion of mine. Mm. So, so have you. And I think that plays a big key in people's lives generally, doesn't it? If, if, if you can find a passion or a purpose, whatever it might be, mm. it it will supercharge all those moments that you might go through. I just wondered what role performing arts played in the years that you were undiagnosed. Because obviously from like 18 oh. to 35, you're yeah. undiagnosed. And, and, you know, I think I used the word earlier, you know, flying by the seat of your pants, <laughs> either appropriate or unappropriately. I'm not sure. Um, and I just, <laughs> and I just wondered, it sounds to me like performing arts really must have helped you. Oh, it was everything. In, in your 20s. It was everything. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I've always, you know, I knew I wanted to be an actor from 11 years old. And I knew I wanted to be go to RADA when I was 12. I remember saying to the careers teacher, I'm going to RADA. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, 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 I really am. Well, not many people get in, Mark, so I'm, no, no, no. I'm glad it happened no, for no, you. No, no, <laughs> What I'm saying is, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. I was incredibly ambitious. I was incredibly driven and incredibly passionate about what I did. And I was lucky enough, you know, to come into the business at an amazing time. You know, the back end of that last generation of those major actors, the last uh, vestiges of the repertory system in this country. Um, you know, when theatre was a real art and craft in mm. this country, it's mm. kind of got... I, I'm not going to go down that road because I don't want to say anything so you're that's not, going to upset anybody. You're not, but a, you're, not, is, you're not a TikToker, Mark, no? No, I'm not. <laughs> no. I, don't, I didn't think so. No, no. What you're no, no. no, but I, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. You know, I, you know the thought of packing your case and going off to some rep and doing a job and meeting new people. I just loved it. And I think that was one of the pains that was so painful when I started to get ill 
and didn't know what I was ill, uh, was to see, you know, there I am at the RSC and I'm playing these wonderful parts and it's slipping through my fingers and I can't help it. Mm, mm. And when when that episode happened in 1995, which which you document very, um, you know, in a lot of detail in your, in your play and, and in your film, um, how long did it take after that quite public in the sense of people that were working in the industry you know the the, the theaters and the directors and the and you, maybe your agent how, how long did it take you from that moment in 1995 to kind of get back in the room if you like five years wow five years yeah i went to my first interview was with mark rylance actually at the globe and he and he, he he looked at my CV and he you know there's a big gap here, Mark. <laughs> right. And I went, gulp. I went, shall I tell him? And then I told him. Right. And then he gave me the job. Wow. And it was all all right. I was back on stage. Yeah. Do you think he was testing you to see if you'd tell the truth? Do you think no, he's no, 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 nothing not like, not that. like that. I think no. he was just he was just he was just genuine. Oh, I see. I don't know where, where, where have you been for <laughs> It's what you've been doing. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I mean, don't, don't forget though. I mean, uh, in those five years, I wasn't yeah. like bedridden in a hospital or no, anything. You know, no, I, I, I went and trained as a patisserie chef. Wow! I worked as a chef in a French restaurant for three years. It was the best thing I've ever, <laughs> one of the best thing I've ever done in my life. I did not know that. Yeah, I'm going to bang it on your door for some pastries. Yeah, yeah. I, I, tell I, you. I worked <laughs> as a, I worked as a chef. Wow. I loved it. It was the first job I'd ever had in my life that you turn up. You do your job and you go home. You don't. You don't. You don't take recipes home and study it and learn. <laughs> and think, How am I going to do that? Do them in different accents. Yeah, do them in different accents. <laughs> and then on Friday night, which was brilliant, they just give you the money in a brown envelope in cash, and that's it. You blow it Saturday and Sunday, and then you start again on yeah. Monday. I loved it. I loved it. And then when I went back into the theatre, it was like this is all a bit weird. This is a bit weird. Ponces. <laughs> And you wrote your play, I believe, in 1999. I did, um, but obviously it didn't. It didn't, you know, get out on stage till a few years later. What? What was? What was the delay? What? Talk me through the journey of 1999. You've written the play to it actually going on at the Young Vic because I'm I'm assuming that's quite a. There were a handful journey. of people that were very supportive of this play. The National Theatre Studio were fantastic. They gave me a space to rehearse it up and play it. Mark Rylance was brilliant. He gave me, in what was now the Sam Wanamaker, we did a few shows in there. Erica Wyman at the gate, she was running the gate theatre at the time. She gave me a couple of performances. But the bottom line was, over the three-year period before I put it in a drawer, I I realised that I couldn't get arrested with that play. Because at that point, you know, mental health was not really, were, were not really in plays. People didn't really write about it. Joe Penhall did, Blue Orange and a few other plays. Um, but actual autobiographical work, no. And also, you know, I was a marked man when I was like the loon from the RSC. Hang on, well, you want to tell a story about going bonkers at the RSC? Not on our stage, you won't. There was a bit of that, mm. you know. And then I put it in a drawer. And um, in 2003, and I went off and I remember my lovely agent said to me, she said, you know, Mark, you know, do you want to be in, it's not happening, is it? Nobody wants it. Do you want to be in plays on your own or do you want to be in plays with other people? I said, well, and quite frankly, with other people. And that's what I did for the next few years. And it wasn't until 2015, 
I was working with the Actors Touring Company, uh, and the uh, uh, the artistic director asked me about but bipolar disorder. I said, I, I can't be asked to tell you about it. Read the play. And I read it. <laughs> and he said, this is fantastic. He said, why don't you perform it for us? And I performed it in the Actors Touring Company's offices by the water cooler. And as soon as I finished, he said, we're going to tour it. Wow. And we toured it. Uh, we did a little, little tour. Uh, David Lan, who was then the artistic director of the Young Vic Theatre, had seen the a showing that I'd done at the National Theatre Studio many, many years before. He saw it. I'd performed it for him privately with his administration staff and um, gave me three nights at the Clare. We sold out. And then at the end of that year, he offered me an official press night and a three-week run in the Maria. And the rest is history. We we took it off to, I think it's toured the UK twice, uh, Europe twice, it, you know, I mean, one of the best moments of my life, and I've worked in some great places with some fantastic people, but let me tell you, it will never be a standing ovation in Barcelona with 300 people. Wow. And Madrid. A play about the capers of a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting myself down there. You know what I mean. It was just fantastic. But this country was in a kind of a stalemate until, I don't know, 95, 2000, 2005. Yeah, yeah, maybe around 2010. And I, I'll be living in such a fantastic culture now, don't we? We can talk about anything, sexual politics and well, it was fantastic. We'll start a podcast on that. That sounds Yeah, good yeah. Fun. But what I'm saying is, is that, that there was a people and, you know, why is why is mental health still so unfunded? Mm, mm. You know, why are people why do they close down uh, community homes, uh, uh, hospitals and stuff like that? And these poor people like my mate with the metal bar, you know, mm. no help. It makes me so angry. And it's because it's not sexy. It's sexy in the theatre. You know, suddenly mental health really got on my... I'm not going to say it would be rude. It really got on my nerves, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, mental health got really sexy, you know, mm -hmm. in theatrically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's not sexy. It's just an issue that is really important. And you hear people say it, don't you, sort of flipping it. They say, well, you know, things are much better now. You know, it's all out in the open. People are talking it's, about it's, it's, it. It's, be it's a bit better. It's a, Exactly. It's a bit better, but it's nowhere near enough. Yeah. And I think people that don't really understand it will go, well, you know, you're talking about it now in the yeah, workplace. Yeah, people are two-faced. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's so much better, isn't it? Oh, he's a lube. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know what no. I mean? It's just, it, it. I don't buy into that bullshit. Mm. It's great mm. that it's on the map. Yeah. It's great that people have been able to, you know, and I feel really proud mm. that, you know, I was part of that initial movement that has helped, you know, all theatres in London now have the facility for, you know, pastoral care mm. for their actors, mm. you know, because mental health is, you know, in, like in your introduction, it's really important. We, people, performers live on the edge. Mm. And and we need holding. But that was never there before. You know, you go to RADA now, those students get, get have got, got counsellors. Drama schools have got counsellors now. There never was, you know. 
Um, you go to the RSC now, you have to fill out a form and talk to a nurse about it. I never had that when I was there. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's important. Things are moving in the right direction. But in the right direction. Yeah. And that's why conversations like this is so important. Yeah, but and, I still think there's a tremendous amount of ignorance and fear and prejudice about it because it's still a very, it's such an unpredictable issue. Mm. So, you know, I, even I, as I was looking at the guy in the, in the hallway, you know, had to got carted off. You know, I dealt with it. I was very calm, but I realised, oh, God, it's a bit scary because mm. it's so unpredictable. Mm. You know, what is it? You know. Yeah. And, you know, the stats that I read out at the beginning around mental health within the performing arts industry and also in across all the creative industries, there's a lot of evidence that shows that um, that we're suffering, you know, a lot more than the general population. And obviously someone with your experience and background, you, you, you are, I would guess, more on top of these things than maybe the average person. You know, when I'm speaking to performing arts students, at, you know, who are training, maybe they've, they've just come out of drama school, maybe they've been out a while. They all report high levels of particularly anxiety. Um, I mean, it's across the board, but particularly that, particularly around, you know, auditioning, um, around, you know, self-taping, um, not hearing back. Uh, and all of that. Have you got any advice for for people that are just struggling generally? Yeah. Look, the f the fact is is that you know, I I I can't speak for drama schools right today, but I do know that when I was at drama school, nobody prepared me for what it would be really like to be a professional. Mm. And the business has changed. There's much less work around. There is, uh, I think, um, a pressure to screen work, film, TV. There's lots of streaming platforms. Um, the focus of our business has changed. When I left, it was about the theatre. Mm. And indeed, still today, all those TV people that you see on in films, they, they come from the theatre. Mm. Those casting directors go to the theatre to see them. Blah, blah, blah. I think there's a tremendous pressure to succeed, to be um, amongst... I remember as a younger actor feeling very, you know, one's self-worth is akin to what job you're doing. Right. If I'm working, if I'm doing this, then I'm, you know... Would you say it's important then not to define yourself by your job title? I do. And I think it's very right. important that the individual, I would say to somebody who came to me and said, I'm really struggling. And I say, you know, really value yourself and your own gifts. You are not going to be everybody's cup of tea. It is in the great scheme of things, you are going to live with rejection as an actor. Mm. You are going to live with it. It is a given. Mm. But your rejection is nothing to do with your talent. Mm. Mm. Your rejection is because your hair's too short mm. or or his ears are too small or whatever it is. Yeah. It's just so many variables. Oh, it doesn't quite fit with Mary because she's playing Elizabeth Proctor. I don't know, whatever it is, you know. Um, so it's it's accepting that rejection is painful. But rejection is painful, but does not have to equate to being self-critical. 
Mm. So, you know, as somebody once said, and it was funny, if I if I if I go to the gym more, will I will I will I get better parts? Right. Well, quite frankly, I mean, I mean, just let's just work that one out. Let's not. You get the point, you know. Um, I wish it was that easy, actually, because I, I, I would just go to the gym more. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> it's about it's about luck, accepting that luck and the moment is, and it's the same thing you asked me about getting well. You've got to have faith. If it is something that you really, really want to do, you will take the difficult times mm. and just keep doing your best. Mm. Just keep taking action, you know. Um, look after yourself. You know, you said, you know, you know, uh, tidy rooms mean tidy minds. Mm. You know, make sure your home is tidy and clean and you're eating well and you're exercising and you're seeing friends and you're having something of a life, you know. And all these things you're talking about now, how you continue to look after yourself. Yeah. Because obviously you've mentioned the medication that you take previously. Mm. Those things that you just mentioned, uh, would you call those the other things that keep you, keep your recovery in motion? Yeah. Yeah. You know, know, uh, the actor is a business. Mm. And it's not just about the business of acting. It's about, you know, you have to look after your business. You have to look after you. You know, you have to be... It's a it's a whole whole package, but you've got to accept and believe you me. After thirty eight years of doing it, it really fucking hurts sometimes. You just go, oh, oh, I didn't get that, or why, why didn't I do that? You know, we live in the world of self tapes now. Mm. I did a movie last year. The director said to me, "He said, do you know how many people I saw for your part?" Mm. I said, mm. "No." He said, "Sixty." Oh what? He said, "Sixty." Fucking hell. Yeah, I did one a couple of years ago and he told me that he'd gone through 5,000 tapes. Oh, no, he hadn't gone through them, but he'd got 5,000 submissions through. Yeah. It's, this, yeah is, so. this is the world we live in. Yeah. But I do believe yeah. cream rises if you've got talent yeah. and, the, and, 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 it, and the part is right for you. I think it's about managing expectations, really, mm. as an actor. You know, it's about what is right for you 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 know what what is meant for you you won't you won't miss mm. mm-hmm. live with the rejection but don't be self-critical it's all about love really ollie it's about love you've got to look after yourself love what you have and be grateful for what you have you know sometimes i think to myself do you know what i got up today i made the bed there's clean sheets on the bed there's food in the cupboard i've hoovered it's the best I can fucking do today, mm. Mm. but I'm comfortable because I've lived a life where I didn't have that. Yeah. And I think when you've gone through such dark moments that you that you clearly have, I would imagine you see the light a little bit brighter than most people when it's shining in your eyes because of that. Yeah, I do, but I, I haven't turned into a saint. Some days I get it totally fucking wrong. I just think, oh, shit, I can't cope. Mm. But it's just the day. Mm. I always come back to put arms around yourself. Be kind to yourself. Forgive yourself. All right, so you've made a mess of it. All right, I didn't get it right. It's okay. Oh, I I don't give a shit about what anybody else thinks Mm. about me. 
Mm. I don't. I used to. Oh, man, I used to. I don't. Because I've realised people are just worried about themselves. It's a full-time job looking after me. Mm. And you talk about love, and I think that's a great way to end, actually, because... I love you, and I love the fact and that you've... And I love ca- you. And I love the and fact... And I love the lady that's doing this. I don't even know her. I love her. <laughs> and I, I'm so grateful that you've come on here and shared part of your story uh, with me and, and, and the listeners and the viewers today. And, you know, I wish I'd have booked this studio now for three hours because I felt that we could have just carried on and on and on. Um, just be kind to yourself. Just be kind to yourself. You're your own best friend. That's what I've learned. I love that. And is, is there any chance that we might see your play make a return to the stage? Because I'd love everyone listening to this uh, and watching this to be able to get the opportunity to, to, to see it. Is there any chance it might come back on a, on a stage somewhere in the future? Everything's always possible. Ollie. Love that. Love that. And you know what? If it does make a return to the stage or the screen, uh, I'll announce it here um, absolutely to let everybody know. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time, Mark. I Pleasure. just, I just want to thank you for just being so honest and inspiring. And um, yeah, I'm just so grateful that you've come on. And uh, we'll leave it there, and we will see you on the next one. Thank Take you. Take care, everyone. Bye.